We're in a series on James chapter 3 and really looking at wisdom. And the funny thing is, is wisdom's not a popular thing. I know this because I had a, a book idea to do a book on wisdom and nobody got excited about it. And, uh, and so I was like, well, then um, I'll teach on it because nobody gets to choose <laughs> what I teach on. But it's like, uh, it's just not a, a concept that grabs people. And I don't, I don't understand how the most powerful concepts are tied to the least powerful words. Have you ever figured that out? Like, if we were going to talk about power words, like, um, you know, when you're writing or uh, you're kind of doing English papers for English class, they tell you use power words. And so when you look at power words, you're never going to see the word faith. Think about it. It's not a power word. The word wisdom, it's not a power word. These kind of power concepts of, of religion are not power words. And I kind of think that that's part of God's subversive way of saying um, you always have to, to take some sort of a step into this. You have to choose it. Um, Jesus kind of put so many offers out to people and said, if you're willing or if you want this, that, that it's here for you. But people always had to say, I actually want to choose this. It's, it's somehow not the power words that are the, the anchor words of Scripture. So anyways, we're doing this series on um, wisdom out of James chapter 3. And I think when you read James, what you find is that it's one of the most, the, the, the biggest power books in Scripture. Um, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, James, they're power books, even if wisdom isn't a power word. They're, they're what's called, along with Job and Psalms, um, the wisdom literature of Scripture. And so as we're reading through James, and James has all this wisdom to give, he starts talking about the tongue, and we've kind of gone through that. And then he gets to verse 13. So James chapter 3, verse 13. And he, he says this. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done, and the humility that comes from wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done, and the humility that comes from wisdom. Now my... Um, My fascination with wisdom goes back a long time. Uh, it's when I first started reading philosophy. And, and philosophy, if, if you don't know, it's, it's just a combination of two Greek words. And so it's um, phileo, which is one of the Greek words for love. It's where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And then Sophia. So the big church in Istanbul called the Hagia Sophia. It's, it's, it's talking of wisdom. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. There's a a movie that, that's fascinating. It was actually a final exam in grad school for me in an, in, a, uh, in an ethics class, and it's called Sophie's Choice. And the whole thrust of the movie is that it's a woman and a man, and she's given him her story kind of all along as she was uh, a Jewish woman in Nazi Germany, and she's kind of telling him this story as they're talking, and the story's moving along and moving along, and this woman's obviously very distraught and, and disturbed, and then it eventually gets to the, the kind of the climax of the movie, and what had been happening all along was she was building up to this moment where she got off a train at a concentration camp with two kids in her arms, one in each arm, and she was given five seconds by, by a Nazi soldier to choose which she was going to keep. 
And the whole dilemma of this movie is how do you make that choice? Ethically, how do you make that choice? Um, and this woman obviously is, is years and years later just still really um, obviously messed up and disturbed and broken because of this situation. But the whole movie is underneath the title Sophie's Choice. And that was done on purpose because Sophia is, is the name of wisdom. And so it's like, it's this play on that. How do you really, how would wisdom even try and tackle a decision like that? But so philosophy, the love of wisdom. And so for over 2,000 years, philosophy or thinking deeply about life, this love of wisdom that we would come and, and look at things and try and figure out um, all things being equal, how do you live rightly? How do you understand the good, the true, and the beautiful? How do you have a flourishing soul? Ultimately, how do you find the good life? So um, I put a, a cover of a book here that was fascinating to me all the way back in grad school, but this is Cicero. In the title of the book, you can't really see it. It's a Penguin Classics, but it's just on the good life. So Cicero in the Roman court um, writes a book on the good life, you know, after the Greeks you know, with their love of wisdom. And so there's always been this kind of tradition of really trying to bring thought to bear on life itself, not on, on certain aspects of life, but to put life on the table and say, what do we know about, how do we understand life itself? And so I've been fascinated by this thing, wisdom, and the idea that we could really think about how to live better and optimize somehow our lives. I mean, that's a fascinating concept um, that we would, we would think about all sorts of other subjects about how to get better at them and read sports books and trying to figure that out. But to actually be able to think about life itself is an unbelievable, um, at least to me, it was an unbelievably cool subject. I mean, what a cool subject to read about, right? And so when I started teaching, uh, I was a college pastor, I was, I was really in, uh, God got a hold of my life and I had about two years and then I was at grad school and right away I started being a college pastor and I started teaching. And you're a pretty dangerous person when you've got like two years of, of uh, intense faith underneath you and then you're gonna start teaching people. And so one Sunday I was teaching a group of college students and I was uber passionate about this stuff right here. And I was saying it's a fascinating thing that you can pursue God um, and that somehow the byproduct of that is happiness. So that we can look for our happiness apart from God and we'll never really truly find it, not in a lasting way. Um, but we can actually run hard after God and, and somehow in that obedience, somehow in that faith, somehow in, in living rightly or living wisely, um, heeding the instruction of scripture, there's actually this happiness that comes about as a back end kind of result. And I said, so you really wanna know what happiness is about, follow God. And, uh, and I was, I mean, I, I believed this to my core uh, and I, I preached it as if I, I was preaching the gospel itself. And then afterwards, this kid came up to me and he was a Bible student at Biola and he was a Bible major and he was a good Christian kid. And he came up to me and he was really angry and he says, you didn't just teach people that they should pursue God because it's gonna make them happy, did you? 
And I was like, no. No, no, uh, no, I wasn't. I don't, I don't, that's not what I meant, you know. And, and I just started backpedaling because when you're new to something, any, I mean, anyone that acts confident can back you off your position, right? And so I just started backpedaling and, and I was just like, oh, I, I didn't mean to mess up. I must have done something wrong. Like, I'm sorry. And then I started, like, thinking about it after he left. Um, and it actually took a couple days and I just was like, wait a second. Like, that's absolutely what I was saying. That's absolutely what I was teaching. That's absolutely what I want people to believe. Um, do I want them to believe that their happiness is going to be found somewhere else? Do, do I want them to feel like they're going to pursue a relationship with God um, with their heart not connected to it? With their desires for joy and fullness of life and goodness to somehow not be attached to it? Do I want them just to see God as this kind of categorical, neutral thing that out of duty they're somehow supposed to have this obedience to and not think about anything else about what's going to happen in that relationship or that dynamic or that God is actually good and that good beings, when they have it in their power, do good things for the people that they love. Do I, do I really want to kind of strip it away of all that and just say you should obey and, and make no, no reference to anything else? And I was just like, no. Of course I'm going to teach people that if they, if they have a desire for the fullness of life, they should pursue God. They were born with that desire. And not only that, but dads desire that their kids know the fullness of life and enjoy the fullness of happiness. I remember my dad, uh, on, a, on a we went and walked a, a lake in Virginia. And we were driving away. And he asked me, are you happy? It was, the, it was the craziest question. He'd never asked it to me in that way before. And I'm like, yes, I'm happy. And my dad said, good. And I thought to myself, that's probably the most simple, basic, true question I've ever heard from my dad. Like, he didn't mean it, are you, are you living a life of pleasure? He didn't mean, are you like, are you fulfilled in hedonism? No, my dad looked at me and he just was, uh, with all the fatherly affection, wanting to know, is life good? Are you good? Is it all good? I, I want it to be well for you, with you, unto you. And, and it was a really interesting thing. And I started thinking about it. And I'm like, that's what God wants for his children. He wants that it would be good and that it would be right and that it would be well and that his children, um, his, his sons and daughters would be happy. But in wanting that, God knows that, that it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen just any old way. It doesn't happen however we choose we want it to happen. It happens in relationship with him when things are working in a certain kind of way. God doesn't want our happiness apart from him. I don't want my kids to cut off relationship with me so that they can go be happy. That, I mean, that wouldn't even make sense to me. But it's like, I want my kids in relationship with me to be fulfilled and to have happiness. And that's the, that's the backbone of biblical wisdom. 
is that we heed the instructions of God, that we would find relationship with God, that in that we would grow into the fullness of that relationship with God, and that we would know joy and satisfaction and happiness, and that it would all kind of turn that way. And so I've kind of realized I'm not going to let um, undergrad Bible students chase me off of the obvious, which I think we all are longing to hear, which is, the wise and understanding among us are going to have a good life. I mean, I could, I could end the sermon right there. I mean, hear me. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. We all want a good life. How's that going to come? It's going to come through wisdom. If you want to be wise and if you're going to act wise, what's going to be the result? A good life. There's something amazing about being able to study life like this. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. And then it goes on and says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. I was reading uh, my journals. I wrote in journals when I, when, uh, when I was age 22 and my life radically changed and I lost all my friends and I'm uh, an extrovert. I had to find another way to verbally process because um, I didn't have any people. And so I started journaling, like, which I quickly called journaling, by the way, um, so that I wouldn't have to think I was keeping a diary. And, um, but so I would journal every day, about every second day, third day, and I did this all the way up until the time um, I had my first kid. Um, then I haven't journaled since. Um, that's also when I started drinking coffee and I haven't stopped since. Um, but so I was rereading these and just, just trying to think about blog posts and interesting things I could write about because my journals ended up being that for me. It wasn't what I was doing, who I talked to always. It was, it, I would kind of start with what was happening, but that would in, uh, immediately kind of turn into a meditation on the spiritual life, on what was going on in my heart, on, on my desires, on how I, I just never really could get it right and my, my wishes and hopes that God would continue to work in me and all this kind of stuff. But it was always meditations on the church, on the Christian life, on those kinds of things. And I was reading it, and there was this theme over the course of from uh, about 95 through 2001, as I was kind of flipping through, there was this theme that kept emerging of this unbelievably strong desire to be all the way in with my faith. I mean, it was, it was really interesting to see for me. Like, that was my life. Um, that every day, every couple days, every whatever day, I would wrestle with my desire to be all in and, and completely sold out and give my life to God and, and how it was a struggle and a challenge, but I wanted to overcome those challenges and I wanted to figure out how to learn from my mistakes. And it was wrestling that through and wrestling that through and wrestling that through. And it was really interesting as I was reading that, here's the thought I had. It's like I really really hope I would want my daughters to have a season like this in life. 
Like if my daughters could spend four years wrestling their faith out, trying with all their might to, to find God, to learn about God, to understand life, to learn how to serve him as a Christian man or woman, if my daughters could have that season of life, like, I mean, I'm done. Nothing else would really matter. Like I would, I would feel like everything is complete in that moment. And so then I started thinking because to have an idea for me is to act on that idea. Anyone ever taken the Strengths Finder test? Yeah? Raise your hands because I want to know if this is a safe crowd. Wow. Okay, so my strengths, I've never shared this publicly because it begins and it, and it sounds really unchristian, um, my strengths. So I don't share them. But it's Father's Day and it's all about me. And... Um, <laughs> So my strengths uh, are competition, um, which to the Gallup organization is a strength, um, even if you think that doesn't sound very pastoral. Um, it's like the Michael Jordan thing. They say you, you, you tend to win, and if you lose, you, you think it's an anomaly. You shrug your shoulders and you say, well, it won't happen tomorrow. But it's that kind of like land on your feet kind of thing. But so competition, command, communication, activator, and then individualization, which is kind of the intuitive thing. They say I always buy the best present for people for their birthdays and Christmas. And if you know me, that's true. Like I, I'll, I can read people. I can, I, I can, I'm a quick study of people and I can figure them out, that kind of thing. But the activator thing is really interesting. It's, it's why can't we start already? Like to have an idea is to act on the idea. Tamara drove me crazy our first year of marriage because I would pick her up from work and every day, the way she would get through work is she would dream about trips. Um, and so she'd get in the car, and we were losing money hand over fist trying to live in Southern California and put me through grad school. And she'd get in the car, and she'd made her way through the day by dreaming about a cruise to Alaska or, or some sunny beach or something like that. And so she'd get in, and she'd start telling me about it. And it would frustrate the life out of me because I'm like, we can't do that. And then I'd start poking all the holes um, in the idea, explaining to her how illogical the idea was. And then she'd start to cry. And she's like, why can't you just let me have my ideas, like my dreams? And that didn't make sense to me. And then I realized the way she was, very creative and all that. So I started um, what I would do during work at about 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock. I would plan out a date for the night. We're going to go to this mall, have dinner here. On the way back, we're going to have ice cream. Um, but then I would translate it into her language, which would be, I would call her up and say, hey, Tamara, what do you think we just go out tonight? And she's like, sure. And she's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. Let's just drive. And so then I would drive to the mall. Hey, there's a mall. Why don't we just go have dinner there? And then we'd go have dinner there. And then it's like, hey, what do you want to do afterwards? She's like, I don't know. What do you want to do? I was like, I don't know. Let's just drive. And so we'd start driving. And like, hey, there's an ice cream place. What do you say we get dessert? <laughs> and and it was like, so I, I figured this whole thing out. And then she figured about three years later what that, anyways. Um, so we've already had this conversation. I'm not breaking the news to her for the first time. But I, I adapted um, with my whole doer self, you know. But activator means you have an idea and you act on it. Um, and I can't even remember where I'm at. But my kid's reading the journal. So, okay, so um, if you're a parent, I think you know what I'm talking about. Like, I, 
for my kids to reach such, such a level of depth of devotion or sincerity, to carry that forward, to try and wrestle out and to, to figure out what discipleship really is, for them to own that, to internalize that. Like that idea hit my head yesterday, two days ago, as I was reading through that. And, and so I immediately started thinking like, so how do I make that happen? How do I make that happen? And you know what you, you run into when you think how to make another person have really, really deep heart stuff? You know what you run into when you're trying to think about that? Is that you can't control it. You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, but if, if they only knew how meaningful this would make their life, that this is going to lead to their greatest life. It's going to help them make the best decisions. If they only knew that this would bring about their greatest happiness. There's the father thing, wanting the best for my kids. And in that, wanting them to plunge deeply into God and the things of the Lord. And I'm like, if they only knew. So how can I tell them? And then I began to realize, isn't that what God does all throughout Scripture? Don't you know I created you? And I created you for something good and for something better than broken relationships and empty pleasure. I created you for, for the flourishing, for, for growing up into the image of God. My image in you. I want that for you. I want it so bad for you, but you have to choose it. And if you would but choose it to wrestle with it, to understand the right principles of life, my commands, all of those kinds of things, the instructions I've given, I've, I'm, I've made it abundantly clear everywhere. If you'd but choose that and lean into that, what it would bring about in you over time would make you so happy and fulfilled and make you the right kind of person. You wouldn't trade it for anything in the world and it would make me, as your, as your parent, feel so uh, honored and pleased and excited and it would only grow us closer together. And that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is what happens when we take hold of that. And we begin to try to own it for ourselves and say, okay, God, I'll lean into this. I'll listen. I'll try to wrestle it out. I'll try to think about it. I'll try to grow from it. I'll try to learn from my mistakes. I want that relationship with you. I want fullness of life. I don't want anything else. It's, it's amazingly simple, the Christian life. But we all have to choose it. Independent, uh, independent of our friends, independent of our family. We all have to individually choose it or commit to it or lean into it. And, and I think we get lulled to sleep in the Christian world that way. This whole passage begins with the word to. Um, it's kind of in your Bible. It wouldn't have been in the original text, but it's just kind of uh, in the, the medieval period where they were kind of labeling these different things. It, it's two kinds of wisdom. And, and it goes on and it says, um, the wisdom from below, earthly wisdom that does not come down from heaven is unspiritual and it's of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And then it contrasts it and it says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
than peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, and then peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. They bring forth fruit. They bring forth goodness. It all works for them. So there's two kinds of wisdom that, gets, that get contrasted. There's two paths in life. There's the narrow path that maybe is a little bit harder, harder to envision on the front end until you get further down the road. Then there's the broad path. But there's this idea of a choice always before us in Scripture. If you choose to obey, there will be blessings. If you choose to disobey, there will be curses. The, the first half of the Old Testament is God trying to say, do you not understand the if-then clause? I've laid it out for you. I've laid it out for you very clearly. I've even proven myself that I'm trustworthy, so trust me in this. If you do good, will good not happen to you? And if you do bad, will bad not happen to you? That there's this choice. And so James begins his book and he talks about pure religion is looking after orphans and widows in their distress. Turn there with me if you will. But chapter one, Um, verse 26, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, there's that theme again, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from, from being polluted by the world. One of my journal entries that I read yesterday was a meditation on this and it was the a meditation on the second half of it, and it was saying to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I, I've always, it was interesting, my, my journal was kind of teaching me because I think we get lulled into this thing that it's um, active obedience is kind of the second half of this. Go be righteous, go behave well. But, but the verb here or the idea of action isn't on going and doing, what's it on? It's not offense, it's what? It's defense. So the idea here is like, go and do good. Look after orphans and widows. It's better to give than receive. When you see the image of God and others and you move that way, it, it completes the circle. We were made for relationship. All things are gonna work well. And in that, the thing that's gonna corrode it or undo it, the relationship with God and others, is being polluted by the world, which means the world pollutes. The world actively pollutes. If you live in uh, Southern California, the air actively pollutes your lungs. It, it actively does that. You, you don't have, there's no neutral thing. The world has a corrosive effect on it. The minute you put food on the counter, what starts happening? You set the clock on when, when you're going to choose not to eat that food anymore, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, things deteriorate. The world pollutes. And we're supposed to keep ourselves, defend ourselves from being polluted by the world so that we can remain pure. So wisdom is what, is what helps us defend against the onslaught of the world. Have you ever thought about that? Wisdom is a defensive word. I think that's maybe why it's not a power word. It's how to make the right choice, not the impulse choice. 
It's how to choose the thing that's going to bring long-term happiness, not falling headlong into to the decision that's going to bring short-term happiness. It's, it's not acting on the desire to burn somebody else's character and tear them down because they've, they've angered you. Instead, it's choosing to make peace, knowing that in the long run, it's going to be better for you and the community, not only them, if you choose to do the hard work of peacemaking and reconciliation. Wisdom is a defensive measure against the impulse or, or the initial thought that comes to us as being in this world, in a fallen world. Does that make sense? It's a defensive thing. Um, it's a pretty big deal because we, we're not on guard. We're not on guard. What's the easiest way to defend? Is when you see it coming. What's the easiest way to defend when you're on guard? Um, I have an alarm system on my house. We put it on, on, on our house. My sister helped me put it on our house um, when uh, all our tires got slashed. And it was just this little extra layer of, of whatever. But every time I set that alarm at night, I kind of chuckle to myself and I think, if someone really wanted to get in here, you know, a little alarm. You know what I mean? Like if someone's really intent, so, so that, that passive kind of alarm isn't the best way to defend. The best way to defend is when you know something's coming, when you're on guard, when you're watching for it, when you think tonight's the night, when you're sitting up through the watches of the night. The best way to defend is when you're on guard, okay? Um, we're not on guard. We live in Bend, Oregon, and the, and this sounds cliche almost, but, but follow me, humor me here. We go to bed at night thinking about which walk we're going to do the next day, which drive we're going to do, which great restaurant we're going to go to. Our, our, our thinking and patterning of life is naturally habituated towards a certain type of leisure. No matter how hard you work, no matter how many hours you work, no matter how difficult things might be, um, we have a relatively passive community. Um, most of us, our lives are, are relatively that way. The world's not like that for other people. Um, the Maras who are in Africa and every day Mike Mara has to decide to go home and not see any more broken bones um, or little kids that need him because he just humanly can't keep working around the clock. And he has to choose to go home because he's like, if I burn out in a year, what good is that gonna do long term? And he realizes the world is, is a difficult place. Um, I got a letter this morning from uh, a good friend, Jeremy Courtney, who's spoken here before. Jeremy Courtney does the Preemptive Love Coalition in Iraq. Has anybody been watching the news lately? And he sent out a prayer. They don't normally hit their database. And so it starts with this. This is a one-time update to select friends. We will not send you regular updates after this. But, but just detailing what's going on, uh, their photographer being kidnapped and or killed, um, the things that are happening all around them. But then this interesting statement that he makes, we have the weapons to unmake violence. We call it preemptive love. It is at times risky, and it doesn't seem to work 100% of the time, 
but it is, a power, it is as powerful as anything else out there and we will not relinquish it and run away, not yet at least. And then he, whatever we think about military, this isn't a military spending thing, but it's, um, but I know this is Jeremy's heart because he's, he lives with it. And he says this, the world has never invested in nonviolence the way we invest in violence. Um, and again, whatever, whatever we think about military, there's something pretty powerful in that um, in terms of how difficult it is to, to wage peace in a world of war, to actively wage peace. Um, the reason short-term trips are so powerful is not because in two weeks you go fix some country but because it takes you out of your comfort zone and reminds you that the world is a broken place. It's a messy place. That there's thing, there are things out there that would, if we took them into our, our thinking or kind of dwelt on them on a daily basis, would pattern our thinking differently. Our wisdom would be seasoned with it. We would look at kind of our daily life, wherever we're from, maybe a little bit differently, and it might become easier to realize that the world is at all times polluting us and that we need to be vigilant even if we're not on the front lines. Going to the front lines can teach us something. We've got a trip, by the way, to Africa that's gonna happen in, in January. I'd highly recommend you go on that um, to Kenya and then down to Rwanda um, with a couple different friends of ours, ending up with Celestine and Africa Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries and, and seeing and learning about things that way. Um, just this week, there's confirmation we're gonna do a trip to Israel and Palestine a year from October. So October 2015, it's so expensive, you need to start saving now. Um, but it's going to be walking through the Holy Land and visiting Jerusalem and, and Galilee and Nazareth and all of the biblical sites, but at the same time, learning about the history of, and the roots of the violence in that area of the world, kind of geopolitically and what's going on and the different peace efforts on both sides, Israeli and Palestinian. And, and I highly encourage you to go to that. Three kids were kidnapped in Israel Three Jewish kids were kidnapped in Israel, and Israel sends in all of the troops, and those troops have to stop cars, break into homes, put people at gunpoint, interrogate people, 20-somethings. I mean, this is, that, that's not our familiar existence, but Dylan Harris is here. He has that, um, the hostel on the lake in Argentina, and when kids get out of the military in Israel, they run to where he's at. They run to that city where they feel like people actually care about Israel, and they want to just unwind and forget about it all because it's hard to live like that. And so Dylan can tell you about trying to speak Jesus into 20-somethings that live a different kind of life that we've lived and have all of that turmoil and conflict in them and they're trying to sort it out and understand there's got to be a, a better way. It's not supposed to be like this, right? And, and so there's something really interesting about how are we going to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world? How are we going to choose wisdom? We have to somehow be more on guard than we, than we are. We're very passive here. 
We have to be heightened and we're never going to be heightened if we don't realize how actively the world pollutes or how strongly we really desire the fruits of wisdom. The two most powerful things we have are our desire for good and our desire for bad not to happen. And the church has to do a better job of calling that out and saying the world is trying to pollute at all times. It has a corrosive effect. And at all times, there is a way to lean into God or to seek for God that will bring you the life you so desperately seek. Every day you hunger for it, yet every day God has outstretched arms saying, choose me. Please realize this is important enough to choose me, to do what's right, and to leg it out day after day so that you can eventually get to the blessings I want to bring to you. It's not just for when things go wrong and then as soon as they're right again, you go back to the world. Please realize this call to follow me is forever It is always the better choice. I am always the one beckoning you in. Please sell out to this. As a dad, I desire that for my daughters, reading my journal, that they would know that. What does God know? He knows that when we seek him with right heart, which leads to right action, that it allows him to complete the circuit and bring us happiness and blessing, right heart and right action in alignment and allows him to bless us. When we, even if we do right actions out of selfish ambition or envy, it, it cannot complete the circuit. God cannot bless that. He cannot affirm that. He cannot drive this when we're broken at a heart level. And so God is saying, this this is the wisdom of the world and it'll never work. This is the wisdom of the world. You think you're looking out for yourself. You think it's gonna bring you happiness, but it actually turns out to let you down. The wisdom from heaven, it's about righteousness. It's about goodness. It's about alignment. It's about trust. It's about choosing a certain way. It's about choosing obedience. It's about choosing to walk by faith. It's about choosing wisdom that's from above. This is what God can bless and this is what God can affirm and it leads to the good life. And we don't have to apologize about it. It's the logic of the whole thing. It's all throughout scripture. C.S. Lewis in his, his essay, The Way to Glory says, somehow we've stopped talking about rewards Because we think it it pollutes the whole thing. And Lewis is like, but when you read the New Testament, the, the amount of rewards that are promised to the faithful is shocking. And that's where he gets the phrase, the weight, I mean the weight of glory is shocking of what's promised. Because God is at all times trying to speak to our desire for good and help us understand that our, our desire for bad should be turned this way to the world because it's bankrupt. And so we're passive in America and I don't know how to wake my kids up. Um, I'm gonna talk to John Lemke later and, and he'll give me some advice. Um, but um, we're so averse to suffering but um, it was a broken jaw for me. Most, most of you guys will be shocked by that. 
because you'd think that if I was ever in a fight, I'd win. Um, but it was a broken jaw that really woke me up. Six guys was, was a really, that's, that's the wisdom that comes from below. <laughs> um, and so I look at it and go, those six years of journaling or whatever it ended up being, it came from some suffering. I hope my daughters will heed my, my advice. But if not, am I a dad who's willing to let them suffer that they might learn to choose what is good, what's right? Because suffering teaches us to be on guard, to think stronger and deeper and more intently about life than the passivity that we normally face when we're not on guard. I, I hunger for our church that way. And I'm like, I don't know how to shock people. I don't know how to get you to write in a journal for six years. I don't know how to get you to leg it out every day. I don't, I don't even know on the front end how to get some people to go all in and to quit just playing games with it, bouncing back and forth. I mean, what I learned when I became a Christian was I'd always been a fence sitter. And a fence sitter is like I want a little bit of, of religion and a little bit of the world I want, to, I want the best of both. I don't want to lose out on anything. Seems pretty smart, right? That's high school smart. That's not real smart. That's like high school, and high school smart isn't real smart. Insurance companies know that, right? Um, but sitting on the fence isn't deep smart. It's not real smart. Because what you end up with is you end up with neither the best of either. If you're going to sin, you might as well really do it. Okay? Not like do it and feel guilty all the time. It's a really horrible way to get any enjoyment out of sin. Right? But the, that's the fence sitter posture. And if you're going to do a little bit of religion, you, you should actually go all in so that God might actually bless you and, and it works. But sitting on the fence where you're neither for either and neither against, it's, it's the most to be pitied of all positions. But I find that most religious people in college or, or in their 20s, that's where they've been lulled into to kind of believing the smartest position is, and, and it's not. So I, I look at our church, and I'm like, I just don't want anyone on the fence. If people are going to leave the church, I'm okay with that, because if they were going to sit on the fence, it didn't matter anyway. So I want to somehow push into it enough that that they'll actually learn how to choose to be all in. I don't want to just create an environment where we can all sit on the fence together and, and feel good about it. So let me just read in closing from Joshua, you know, kind of in honor of Father's Day here. I want to read a whole chapter from Joshua, and then it, it kind of ends the following chapter with a famous phrase. But listen to the themes. I, I just want to show you that this is biblical talk. We're, we're having a biblical conversation. So I'm going to just read this whole chapter for you, and I just want you to hear all of the little echoes of what we're talking about here. So this is Joshua's farewell speech. In his old age, after a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then old and well advanced in years, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. You, your soul, you yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. And it was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted an inheritance 
for your tribes, all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the great sea in the west, the Lord your God himself will drive them out, out of your way, and he will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land, and the Lord your God has promised this to you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or the left. Two ways, one choice. Do not associate with those nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them because they're all around you. There's a polluting effect. Don't let that get in and begin to, to hollow you out or water you down. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you because he's on your side. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations, making peace with what's around you, that remain among you, and if, if you intermarry with them and associate with them, again, unequally yoked, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land, which the Lord your God has given to you, good land. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that no one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave, um, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave, gave you has failed. I mean, let me say that like again. You know that with all your heart and soul, do we know that? I mean, maybe, maybe I'm hanging up on this because we're supposed to hear this. Do we believe this with all our heart and soul that of all the good promises that the Lord your God gives that he will, he will make good on? that he has not failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land that he has given you. Are you, are you guys picking up on just the, the threads? The story of scripture is a pretty clear one. It's not that we're perfect. It's that we're desirous. It's not that we always get it right, but it's that we want to get it right and we seek help from the Lord and we don't judge other people when they're getting it wrong, but we're saying somehow the way it should be, God, I'm into that storyline. And, and all you can do to forgive me and to grace me and to assist me and to keep, to keep day after day, week after week, year after, uh, after year, straightening me out and sanctifying me and helping me grow up into that, that's where the humility that, that, that goes with wisdom comes from, is that I cannot do this of my own. And when I do it, I realize since it wasn't of my own, I'm not going to become proud or pretentious. I don't want the good life so that I'm better than you. I want the good life because it's better than the bad life. Does that make sense? And so then Joshua goes on and he says in chapter 24, um, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. 
Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then you choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That is our choice. That is our decision of the two options. That's where we're going to put our lot. That's where we're going to put our gamble. So Father's Day, we all feel protective of our families. We desire good for our families. Families and wives, um, the encouragement that fathers need and men need to be able to lead this way and be freed up to lead that way. I'm just going to close us in prayer. If you will, just close your eyes. But if you hunger for more of God and not to be caught in the middle, maybe just where you're sitting, put your hands out. Put your hands out. And I'll read this again. Now fear the Lord and serve him in all faithfulness. Throw away the gods that your forefathers worshipped. What are we letting go of? What do we need to let go of? But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, and just picture in your mind, you do not want to close your hands and keep things back from God. You want it all in. We deep down, I think all of us know that ultimately we want to trust God, that we know that only there we're going to find life, but we're hesitant, we're fearful, we're weak, but that's okay. At the end of the day, we've got to go with open hands. And if it's your prayer, just pray with me. But as for me and my household, Father God, I desire this day and for this day evermore to serve you and to serve you alone. Amen.